Well, it's great to be back and uh, <clears throat> want to uh, echo uh, some of what Yuri was just saying. Thanks so much for, um, for your partnership with Kim and I, uh, with Wycliffe all these years. I've been with Wycliffe since uh, 1988 now, but of course you've been a part of my life way longer than that since the, uh, the early 70s and uh, thank you so much for just uh, all the love and the support, the prayers and the, uh, the financial partnership uh, as well. Um, Kim uh, isn't here with me this uh, weekend, but um, her roles at CanIL, uh, we serve with Wycliffe Bible Translators at our training school, Canada Institute of Linguistics, which is in uh, Langley at Trinity Western uh, University. And uh, Kim is involved in a number of administrative roles. She uh, works the reception desk. She helps out with a, uh, a program called pre-launch where she helps students budget and uh, also develop a support team while they're at school. And then um, her favorite thing by far is, uh, is mentoring uh, the young uh, women at her school. And she, she does that informally and, and is very busy with that and, and loves doing that. Um, I teach, uh, I teach a number of classes. Uh, one's called Field Methods, the other one's called Lexicography, Dictionary Making. But I thought I'd share, <clears throat> I was working on uh, coming here this week and uh, on Tuesday I got a Facebook message from one of our alumni and I uh, thought I'd share this with you. I'll read it out. <clears throat> it's from Ryan Hardy. He and his wife are in uh, Papua New Guinea. Uh, good morning here. He, this is afternoon my time. You've been on my mind so much this week. I'm in Madang doing my very first real world elicitation in the Saab Usino language of Madang province. I smiled a lot when I was setting up my data notebook, preparing for archiving data, setting up Audacity, etc. Thank you for all you taught me. It's been going so well because you taught me how to do it. Thanks for caring for me through my two years at CanIL. I know I'm just beginning, but I wouldn't have a clue what I'm doing without your ministry, and I miss you. I, I get some letters like this occasionally from, uh, from alumni on the field, and I just wanted to share that with you because that's my privilege to work with these wonderful, amazing students, and uh, they're really your students as well uh, because of that partnership, and uh, I'm excited for Ryan and his family as they, as they get started in uh, language analysis and translation. They're actually with Pioneer Bible Translators, another Bible translation organization that we uh, provide training for. So <clears throat> I wanted to, um, yeah, say thank you. Some of you may have seen this post on Facebook, did you know that in, you know, that over 7,000 languages around the world, the center of emotion is not necessarily the heart, right? In many languages, it's the liver, it might be the bowels. Uh, in other languages, like in uh, Papua, it's the, uh, the throat. So uh, Kim and I just wanted to thank you from the bottom of our livers for, for all these years of, uh, of partnership. And uh, I'm going to show a short video. <clears throat> it really recaps well what, uh, what Wycliffe is up to uh, around the world. The Bible. It's one of the oldest and most popular books of all time. But is it just a book? Or is it much more than that? At Wycliffe, we believe that the Bible is literally God's word to us, and we think everyone deserves to hear it in a language they can clearly understand. But here's the problem. Not everyone has access to God's word. In fact, 
people from at least 2,000 language groups are still waiting for their Bible translation to begin. That's over 180 million men, women, and children who don't have a single word of the Bible in a language they can clearly understand. When people finally get the Bible in their own language, lives often change in amazing ways. We've seen people freed from addictions, saved from violent lifestyles, and rescued from some very dark corners of their own hearts. Men and women have found forgiveness for past wrongs, and relationships have been restored, each empowered by the truth and wisdom of God's Word. But the most important thing about the Bible, the thing that makes translation so crucial, is that it leads people to Jesus Christ and a right relationship with God. That's why Wycliffe exists. It's why we're working with more than 1,500 language communities right now to help them get God's Word. And no matter what it takes, we won't stop until all people have the Bible in a language they can understand. So a number of years ago, um, I was here and I reported that uh, we'd actually reached this, uh, this mark of less than 1,700 languages left in the world without scripture. And since that time, the number has actually gone up again over 2,000. And one of the reasons for that is um, we've discovered a whole bunch of sign languages, hundreds of sign languages that are used by communities around the world. And quite often these communities of um, deaf people are um, marginalized in, the, in their societies, and, um, but they have their own unique sign language, non-American sign language, and sign languages are different all over the world. And so we've, uh, we've been doing sign language translation for a while, but uh, we're uh, ramping that up. So that's another 200 or so added to that list. So again, we're, we're at about uh, 2,000 languages without access to God's word. So, you know, you've been focusing on this uh, in this series, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 7,000 languages around the world, more than 2,000 languages without a word of scripture that need it. Um, Joshua Project talks about people groups uh, within those languages, more than 6,200 people groups that are unreached uh, around the world. How on earth did we get in this predicament? Right? All these languages and cultures, communities uh, around the world. Well, <clears throat> I saw um, a reference to the biblical account on a reboot of the X-Files uh, a number of years ago, and I just found this fascinating that Mulder and Scully were talking about the Tower of Babel, right? Walk with me, Scully. This whole thing's got me thinking, thinking about God. You, Mulder? You, thinking about God? Yes, the angry God of the Bible. The Tower of Babel and Babylon, scattering people violently so they're never to speak a common language, punishing man for his hubris, for his pride. I think that's a, a common interpretation of... Uh, about language, that language is an obstacle to be overcome. All these different cultures and communities, um, it's, it's hard to work cross-culturally sometimes, right? And uh, that the proliferation of languages is perhaps a curse or a punishment for humanity's pride. 
There's lots of different cultures that have similar stories to the Tower of Babel, right? Very similar. But I'd like to propose that Babel is perhaps less a curse and more a blessing that reveals the heart of God. So I'm going to be uh, addressing these questions, and hopefully by the end uh, we'll, we'll have some, uh, some thoughts or some answers about these. So what, what might have been God's plan A with respect to language and languages around the world? What was his original intent in creating humanity? What did God invite us to do from the very beginning of time? What were the primary purposes of God's intervention at Babel, at the Tower of Babel? And what else does God invite us to do now? So those are the things that we're going to look at together. Romans tells us that for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what's been made. Thus, creation is a revelation of who God is. I'll refer to this as the creation revelation, and what an amazing, beautiful, diverse creation it is. I love coming back to Edmonton in the middle of winter. I love the beauty on the prairies here. I love going for walks in the river valley and hearing that crunch of snow instead of the slop of mud in the Fraser Valley. I just, I love that diversity of creation. Uh, Cardinal Ratzinger said, creation exists to be a place for the covenant that God wants to make with man. The goal of the creation is the covenant, this love story between God and humanity. If creation is meant to be a space for the covenant, the place where God and man meet one another, then creation must be thought of as a space for worship. So out of the mission of God, out of this love for uh, humanity that he's about to create, he creates this revelation for us to live out this love story between us and him. With all of its diversity in geography, flora and fauna, God invites us to fill it, to interact with it, to get to know what God is like through it. Language serves a special role in this interaction. In Genesis 2, God invites man to name what he experiences in creation. Thus, language is a way to pay attention to what God has created. What, wouldn't it have been amazing to be Adam and what, what would he pay attention to? Which things would he actually give notice to and actually name, right? And uh, <clears throat> we're witnesses to God's revelation in, in creation. And we use words to bear witness to it. We use language to bear witness to it. What we pay attention to comes out of our context, our experiences. The meanings of words that you carry around in your head come entirely from your experience. It couldn't come from anywhere else. Um, you have experiences you know, through television, through reading, through actual experiences, uh, through your imagination even. But all of the meanings of words that we carry around come out of our experience. So if we think of a word like fishing, think of all the different contexts and experiences around the world that people have with respect to fishing. Think for yourself, what are things that come to mind when I say the word fishing? Maybe it's a rod and reel, maybe it's nets, right? Around the world, it, it's going to be different. So nets might be used, uh, it might require a boat uh, instead of fishing on the side of the river or a dock. Uh, the weather in which you do the fishing might be quite different around the world. 
the fish are incredibly different around the world, right? Fresh or salt water, how they're distributed, all of those things, right? And even beyond the, the basic meanings of fishing are our personal experiences. For me, fishing is very nostalgic. I, I think of all the times fishing with my brothers and my dad, and, uh, and I love the idea of fishing. This is one of my first fish, right, out at Wabanwood. And uh, all those things. And for, you know, more recently, my, um, my experience with fishing includes the idea of trees, because I inherited a fly rod, and I'm not that good at it yet. And this is, this is a huge meaning for me now, right? So the context we find ourselves in, the experiences we have, define the meanings that we carry around with the words. Okay? Imagine this, all of God's creation inhabited by people experiencing something in their environments, maybe something like fishing in this diversity of contexts, right? Of course, in some contexts, like in the desert areas, there might not be any fish. Um, there are 7,000 languages in the world <clears throat> today, and just think of the, the diversity of opinion, of, of experience, of meaning based around fishing. I looked up fishing yesterday on the internet in other languages, and I found like uh, 250 words from around the world, right? And I know that those conceptualizations of fishing are going to be different than mine because people have different experiences around the world. God invites us to inhabit the fullness and the goodness of creation. God blesses us and says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. He says, I invite you into a fuller perspective of who I am and my love for you by filling the earth. Experience relationship with me in the vastness of my creation, my creation revelation, this space I created for the love story to take place and continue to name it, articulate it, through language, through words. Well, not long after this invitation to blessing, we find Adam and Eve uh, falling, sinning. A little while later, we find an account of humanity at its worst, and Noah and the Ark story. And then after that, we find the account of Babel. At one time, all the people of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. They began saying to each other, let's make bricks and harden them with fire. Then they said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. Note their desire is to not be scattered, to not be scattered, and that it's in direct conflict with the command, the invitation to fill the earth. But the Lord came down to look at the city and the tower the people were building. Look, he said, the people are united. They all speak the same language. After this, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down and confuse the people with different languages. Then they won't be able to understand each other. The text is somewhat unclear as to why human initiative is, uh, is a problem and its subsequent success in building this tower. But I think we can maybe read between the lines and state the, the problem as something like, no evil, rebellious, or prideful act they set out to do will be impossible for them. There's a little bit of a seesaw shape to this story, <clears throat> more easily seen in the Hebrew. The people bring their side of the seesaw down with calls to unified action. Let us make bricks. 
Let us build a great city that reaches up and the motivation for their action. Otherwise, we will be scattered. But the Lord comes down on his side of the seesaw. Let us go down. Let us confuse. There's actually even a play on the Hebrew words here. Let us confuse is Nabala. And it's a play on the same letters in the phrase, let us make bricks, Nilbana. Some suggest there might be some mockery, some sarcasm here. Let us go down. You think your tower is so high, we're coming down, right? <clears throat> but it's uh, obviously not equal force on the two sides of the seesaw. God comes down with all of his might, launching all the people on the other side into the air, confusing the languages, scattering them into diverse places. Like Mulder and Scully said, multiple languages are thus traditionally seen as an outcome of punishment or conquest in this playground, this, this story between God and man, and God's using it to humble us and counteract pride. So at first glance, it really does feel like punishment, but I think there's something much bigger going on here. It's not just God demonstrating his power and authority. Note the stated intent of God's act. In that way, the Lord scattered them all over the earth. It doesn't even really say in that way the Lord brought down their pride. Um, in, in that way, he, you know, <clears throat> uh, he punished them. No, it says in that way, the Lord scattered them all over the world. And in case we didn't get it the first time, right within the same paragraph, right at the end, it says exactly the same thing. In this way, he scattered them all over the world. I think that's what God is up to here. The mission heart of God is reaching out to get us back on track, getting us to fill the earth, that invitation to get to know him in this covenant space where the love story between humanity and God takes place. For sure, there's an element of discipline or punishment but that most repeated phrase, scattered all over the world, that's what the people started with. We don't want to be scattered all over the world. And then God accomplishing this scattering. In his mercy and his love for us, God's missional heart does not leave humanity to its own devices. We're, we were isolating ourselves from his vast <clears throat> creation, our isolation from all that is good. Rather, he sets back... <clears throat> his original plan of blessing back in motion that we would fill his creation and get to know him through it. So he scatters us all over the world. Had we responded to God's initial invitation from the very beginning, what we know about language development, <clears throat> I think we would have seen thousands of languages anyhow. Right? We only have to look at Dutch, German, and English to observe this. These languages come from a common Germanic source, but as Communities spread out and isolated themselves a bit from one another. We see these dialects uh, happen, right? Even now in, in contemporary Europe, you have lots of different dialects of German and lots of different dialects of Dutch from these isolated, somewhat isolated communities. Of course, they all speak uh, a majority language together so they can understand one another in commerce and that kind of thing. But we know languages develop over time in this, in this way. So, if humanity had responded proactively to fill the earth, thousands of languages and cultures would have naturally been the result. In other words, thousands of languages is a pre-Babel idea. It was intended from the beginning. 
One of my students said, oh, you mean thousands of languages is God's plan A. Yes, that's exactly what I mean. I'm not the first person to say this either. There's lots of people over the last uh, couple hundred years that have said uh, something similar. So God's action at Babel is therefore both a calculated discipline for our pride, but also a way to bless us, to set us back on track. Unlike Mulder's interpretation in the X-Files, Babel is more than God's anger. Babel is the missional heart of God at work. Babel is blessing. In Genesis 12, immediately following the story of Babel, we find confirmation of God's intent to bless. We see the mission heart of God as he declares to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All the peoples would eventually be 10,000 plus people groups living across the globe. Each dot on this map, this comes from uh, Joshua Project, represents a people group today, each one of those tiny dots. And the red dots are the ones that are unreached, groups still waiting to hear of God's blessing. This blessing is repeated to Jacob and David and the, by the prophets. David invites all nations, all peoples, to praise God. The great commission of Christ evokes the great commission of God to fill the earth. In Genesis, God says, go into all the world, fill it, be fruitful and multiply, experience me and name my creation revelation. In the gospels, Jesus says, go into all the world and proclaim my salvation revelation to every creature that's come out of that dispersion using the languages that came out of the Genesis story and all the ones that would subsequently develop after that. So God reinitiated diversity in the filling of the earth at Babel, and now he sends his disciples with the new salvation revelation to fill the earth, to proclaim to every creature this good news. There's a missiologist, Lamin Sana, who beautifully states that every one of those dots, every tribe, tongue, and nation is in a, a unique, authentic destination for God's promise of salvation to dwell. Right? In all of its uh, beauty, uniqueness, and diversity. <clears throat> there are many groups that don't have access to this blessing. This uh, map is uh, what's commonly referred to as the 1040 window between uh, 10 degrees and 40 degrees of latitude. And it's home to the majority of the world's unevangelized countries. Um, it's only a third of the total landmass of the world, but nearly two-thirds of the world's population lives within that, that uh, rectangle that you see. And um, <clears throat> in the revised 1040 window, uh, Christianized countries now, such as South Korea and the Philippines, have been removed, but several additional ones, such as Indonesia, have been added into there. So about more than 3 billion people live within 6,200 unreached people groups within that rectangle there. It also contains the largest unreached people groups that are more than a million people in size. So some of those dots, it's a small dot, it represents an unreached people group, but it might be more than a million people. And some of these dots already have access to the scriptures in a language they understand, uh, but they don't have, uh, because of political reasons, they might not have access to, to those scriptures 
or to a church or those kinds of things. So they're uh, still uh, unreached. So we have both this problem of um, language being, uh, the scriptures not being available in the language, and then also, if, even if the scriptures are available, sometimes people don't have access uh, to, to the good news of the gospel in that language. The top 50 least evangelized megacities are all in the 1040 window. <clears throat> so if we're to be witnesses to the ends of the earth as we look at this Acts 1-8 verse, then we need to be very intentional about reaching the groups, the, the people groups within that, um, that rectangle. So, so many unreached people groups, right? Those that don't have the scriptures in their language and those that don't have access uh, to the gospel. Um, <clears throat> I'm commonly asked with respect to Bible translation in a lot of these languages that are in that area as well, why, wouldn't it be better to just teach people English or other majority languages where we already have the scriptures? We already have the scriptures in o over 800 languages around the world. Well, <clears throat> if there ever was a time where God could have done that, it was Pentecost, right? Where the Holy Spirit came down and all of a sudden people hear the, glory, the, the glories of God being declared in their own languages. Multiple languages were present. But the reverse could have happened where all those people could have understood one language and the glory of God being declared in that one language. But that's not what God did. He had the glories of himself declared in multiple languages. I think it shows that God cherishes, cherishes language and the unique perspectives they bring in our relationship with him. God's about transforming the heart or the liver, right? Or the throat, whatever it might be. And he speaks in the language of the heart. People pay attention when they hear their language. Maybe, um, Maybe you've been uh, in a situation, uh, maybe you're an English speaker and you've been overseas and you've been in a situation where you were a minority language speaker and you hear all the other languages going on and you don't understand a thing, but all of a sudden somebody says something in English and you just, you know, you hear it all of a sudden, right? Or maybe you're a minority language speaker here in Canada and, and you hear somebody speak your language and you hear it immediately out of the, the multitude of other words that are being said. Uh, this is Alex, <clears throat> an alumni of Canil, and he just stayed with Kim and I in uh, Langley. Uh, he was home on a short, short furlough from Peru, and he shared this story uh, from Peru that I just found fascinating. He was uh, invited to speak at a church in, um, in the highlands of Peru with a Quechua dialect, and uh, he speaks Spanish really well, so he was speaking in Spanish. And, he was noticing people weren't really paying much attention to him. There were adults whispering in, in their own conversation. There were a bunch of kids running around at the back. The babies were crying, right? But he had a portion of scripture already translated into this Quechua dialect. It was the story of the prodigal son. And he starts reading it. And he actually doesn't know the language that well yet. He's just getting into it. And he said, all of a sudden, it got quiet. The, the, the people in the congregation stopped their whispering conversations. The kids at the back of the hall there stopped running around. They paid attention. And he said, the baby stopped crying. I said, what? The baby stopped crying? <laughs> really? He said, really? The baby stopped crying, right? And just the power of God's word in a language that 
you understand. This was how Wycliffe was founded, right? Uncle Cam was uh, giving out Spanish Bibles in uh, Guatemala to the Cacachel uh, people. And one of the people said, oh, if your God's so great, why doesn't he speak my language? Why don't, why don't I have a Bible in Cacachel? And Uncle Cam said, you're right. We need to start translating into the language of the heart. Not only does the heart language speak to speakers of a language, <clears throat> sometimes it also speaks to us as non-speakers of the language. My brothers and sisters across the world bear witness of God to me. And now I'm going to pass on that witness to you. I really feel strongly about this. The diversity of languages and cultures exists in the body of Christ for our good, for our blessing, for us to get to know God better. Bible translators, when they're figuring out how to <clears throat> best convey the meaning of scriptures, they often run into difficulties with abstract concepts like forgiveness and love even. These things can be uh, difficult to translate into other languages. But when the equivalents are found, quite often the results are rewarding to everybody in the process. Uh, English speakers, uh, vernacular language speakers, everyone. <clears throat> there are so many stories that come out of this process of translation. I find that each one of these stories is a testimony that bears witness to the mission heart of God, his love for us. So I'd like to share a few of these stories. So David Waters, who uh, passed away a few years ago unexpectedly, but he's, uh, he's been working in, he was working in Nepal in the uh, highlands of the Himalayas there <clears throat> on the language of Kham. And uh, Hastaram was his co-translator, a Kham person. And um, they were working on this concept of forgiveness and not making any headway whatsoever. Well, a few weeks later, they were working on some other passage of scripture, and they witnessed this man come into the room, and he's stomping around, and he says, in calm, <clears throat> he'd better watch out. I've got that guy strung up in my heart, and I'm going to keep him there. Right? And as soon as David heard it, he looked at Hastaram and said, do you ever say something like, you should unstring that person from your heart? Suddenly, Hastaram figured out what forgiveness was, all that discussion a few weeks earlier, and said, why didn't you just say so? But of course, uh, sometimes you just need the right words, right? So they ended up translating <clears throat> this uh, passage of scripture as, if you have anyone strung up in your heart, unstring him so that your Father in heaven may unstring you. Such a beautiful metaphor coming out of that, that, that cultural perspective. Now for me, the first time I heard this story, which was many years ago at Oregon SIL, one of our training schools, David was uh, uh, director there at that time, and I, I remember holding somebody in bitterness and knowing I should forgive them, but by this slightly different perspective, God spoke to me in a new way, with more conviction, right, and more required action on my part. So sometimes, the, the multiplicity of somewhat unique perspectives helps us to see God better and to know what he's asking of us. <clears throat> Another colleague of mine <clears throat> who works at one of our training schools in uh, California, he works remotely with Quechua speakers in Peru. He's been there for a number of decades. And uh, <clears throat> I actually had the privilege of, uh, of working with him uh, <clears throat> on a in a Skype session and watching, but he shared a, 
uh, story once of um, they were working on the parable of the lost sheep where the, the shepherd leaves the 99 to search for the one lost sheep. And the Quechua translation team that was there pointed out that in their community, really, they don't have numbers like that. They don't really care about numbers. And Rick, he's going, okay, great. How are we going to translate this passage without numbers like 99? And um, one of the translators said, well, my mother is a sheep herder. And she actually has more than a couple hundred sheep. But uh, she doesn't know how to count. Um, but what she does know is when one sheep is missing. And Rick said, well, how? How is that possible? And he answered, the co-translator answered, she knows each and every sheep. The color, its unique spots, its birthmarks, its size, the way it walks, the unique sound of its bleat, its ba, which sheep it, it tends to hang out with. She knows every one of her sheep. And when a sheep is missing, she knows it and she goes after it to find it. Right? That whole group was just floored. Right? This wasn't a parable about 99 and 1. It's about God knowing us so intimately that he'll come after us when we're missing. So these are the kinds of things, as you're in this cultural nexus, comparing one culture with another, and actually working on the scriptures together like that, that you get to see God in a slightly new way. And I love, you know, when I hear these stories from translators, translated back into English for me, I don't speak Quechua, these Quechua dialects, that these get to affect uh, my life as well. So we bear witness to one another. We testify to one another of God's glory and transforming power in our lives out of our unique experiences, even within our language communities. Most of us speak English. I encourage you to share the testimonies, right? To tweak each other's conceptualizations of, of who God is and how he loves us through those stories uh, as we testify, as we are his witnesses. Maybe you can think of cross-cultural experiences that you've had or cross-linguistic experiences where you became aware of your own perspectives as a result of that point of contrast and comparison and knew God and knew yourself and knew your friends in a new way as a result of that. I think we get to do this for eternity. I just shared with you a story I had been told. Hopefully I've tweaked your, your conceptualization of forgiveness a little bit. In heaven, we all gather around the throne together. Thousands of languages, thousands of nations, tribes together. And I think part of what we're going to be doing is sharing with one another, tweaking our perspectives. And then from that, I'll share that with somebody else. And the glory that goes to God can go on for eternity as we learned uh, from one another and as we all bear witness to one another. From Revelation 7, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice. I was going to get Carlos to read this, but I couldn't find him, so I'll try. My Spanish is terrible. La salvación viene de nuestro Dios, que esta sentado on el trono y del cordero. Or in French, a notre Dieu, soit la louange, la, glo la gloire et la sagesse. Or in many other languages, right? 
It's not going to be just in English as we're all gathered around the throne. It says people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. What a beautiful symphony that will be. And all the various experiences of God's work through Christ in those unique, authentic destinations for God's love to dwell. That's the privilege we have to enter into as we do this work of bearing witness to the ends of the earth. So let's go back to these questions. What might have been God's plan A with respect to language? Well, I think it was thousands of languages. I hold to this loosely, but I, I really think that, that that was what God had intended from the beginning. What did God invite us to do from the beginning? To fill the earth, to fully inhabit this covenant space, this creation revelation where the love story between God and us takes place. What were the primary purposes of God's intervention at Babel? To scatter us, to not allow us to cloister, to not allow us to become more and more prideful, to bring into check our hubris, and also to bless us, to re-invite us back into the fuller experience of the love of God. Languages are not an obstacle to be overcome, not a punishment or a curse to be overcome. They are an invitation to go deeper into the love story between God and humanity. What else does God invite us to do now? To proclaim salvation, freedom from slavery to death, to all the people on the earth because of Christ's love for us and going the distance on the cross and rising from the dead. To have our own understandings of ourselves and God changed as we bear witness to one another as we read the scriptures and allow them to transform us. Some homework for you. Compare notes. Get to know other people in the congregation. Ask them their cultural and language backgrounds. Ask for the unique things that they can think of that affect how they view the world and share those with one another and see how those come out in scripture as well. Kanael's most recent tagline is this, you have the most powerful words in the world. Share them. <clears throat> Don't sit on them. Don't leave them on the shelf. Eat them. I love that. Bread of life, right? Jesus is the bread of life. The word of God is the bread. Eat them. Live by them. Share them. Bear witness to them. And listen to the witness of your local brothers and sisters here in Edmonton and also to the witness of those around the world for your encouragement and for your spiritual growth, your maturity. Share them in the heart-liver language to those who don't have these words of freedom yet, the thousands of languages and people groups who remain unreached. Maybe you know uh, someone who's interested in uh, languages. Uh, I would love to talk to them. Uh, we're, we're doing a big push to get more and more people involved in the Bible translation movement. God is raising up Bible translators all over the world. There's more than 100 Bible translation organizations now, uh, and we all work together. Um, maybe, uh, <clears throat> maybe you know someone who loves uh, the languages of Lord of the Rings series or these TV shows and, and video games, right? Those, those are the kinds of people that tend to love linguistics and this whole thing of how it intersects with Bible translation. So if you're one of those persons or you know somebody like that, send, send them my way, send them to Ken Iel or Wycliffe, and we'd love to talk to them. 
And maybe you're trying to figure out what your next steps are in, in just reaching out in Edmonton, right? And I encourage you to, to take those steps as we read this uh, passage of